Um, well, we're glad that you're with us as we wrap up a series that we've been in the last couple of weeks that we've been calling Neighbors. And in this series, we've been looking at kind of a famous story that Jesus told uh, that we often refer to as the Good Samaritan. And we've been kind of looking at a specific portion of that text where there's, there's this religious leader who comes to Jesus and says, hey, uh, what must I do to, to get eternal life? And in this encounter, it basically comes down to two things, loving God and loving others, loving your neighbor. And, and this guy kind of, it says, the scripture says he wants to test Jesus, and so he says, well, who is my neighbor? And that's where we then get this story, this, this story of the Good Samaritan, of this man traveling along the road who sees someone suffering on the side of the road and, and stops and risks his, his life, his well-being, his safety, gives up his resources to care for this person in need. And we've been asking the question for ourselves, who is our neighbor? If this is what Jesus is inviting us to, what, what does that mean for us specifically, as individuals and as a community? And so we've, as we've done that, we've actually tried to engage with some actual flesh and blood neighbors, because we thought that's a little bit more helpful than just kind of playing in the theoretical. And so in doing that, uh, we, you know, we, we've interacted, engaged with a, a Spanish-speaking congregation. We had Pastor Carlos here. Many of us went down to El Portico to worship with them. Uh, we had a representative from Safe Burks, who's, who we're doing the campaign with, who came and talked to us about their work with those who are uh, suffering from domestic violence. Um, we, we interviewed uh, Roy Larson from Immigrant Hope, who's working to help those who are seeking a, a, a legal path to citizenship and heard some of their stories and the work that they're doing. And then we even heard from a, a rabbi and a local Muslim businessman to hear some about other communities outside of the Christian community in Berks County and what their experience with, what their experience is with this area and what it looks like for us to be good neighbors to them. And so this week, as we kind of put a bow on this series, we wanted to end with a, so now what? What does this mean for us? Is this just kind of something that we did that was kind of interesting, or does it have implications beyond the last couple of weeks? And I think, uh, hopefully it's obvious, the answer is, yeah, absolutely. We believe this has implications beyond just, hey, we had kind of a cool series, there were some neat conversations, hopefully that was in some way informative to you. Um, because when Jesus tells this story, it's not kind of just this, this fairy tale that he tells to inspire us. But it's more like a rubric that he gives us for a different way to live in the world. Again, this is a response to the question, how do I find eternal life? And when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about the component that happens after death, though that's part of it but that that's just an extension of the life we live now in relationship with God and others. That Jesus is inviting us to see a different way of life in the world now. That's why at the end of this story, and, and we've, again, we've read this story a couple of times, so we won't read the whole thing. If, if you're not familiar with this story, and this is your first week with us, I encourage you to read it at home. You can find it in the Gospel of Luke, which is the third biography of Jesus that we come to in the New Testament. Um, it's in chapter 10. I encourage you to read that story on your own. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the back countertop that we invite you to take one home as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. But we're just going to read the end 
Because Jesus says something really important at the end of the story. In Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 36, Jesus tells this story, and he, he gives, if you remember in the story, there's three different individuals. There's the two people, there's the person, well, there's four. There's the guy who gets beat up, and then there's three people who come across him. The first two kind of pass on the other side of the road. The last one is the one who stops and helps him. And Jesus says, he asks this question, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, this is the man who asked him the question, who is my neighbor? The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Or I kind of like the way a different, another translation says it in the NIV version of the Bible. Um, they say, he says, go and do likewise. This story that I just told that, this is kind of a, a, a road map for how you ought to live. Respond in the same way. Respond in mercy. And I think this is key, this, this focus on the one who showed him mercy, this idea of mercy. Because I think we, we kind of, we see mercy from a very, uh, a very singular vantage point often. When we think about mercy... We often think in terms of choosing to not do something that we feel like we have the right or the ability to do. So, for example, I coach youth basketball. I have four kids. Um, three of them have played basketball at different times in their life, and I've really enjoyed coaching them, even though I'm not much of a great coach. But you can kind of hide that when you're working with youth sports because it's pretty easy to be a step ahead of, like, eight-year-olds. Right? So that's why now when my kids are kind of moving into junior high, I'm like, hey, I'm happy to watch, right? Because it's just easier that way to hide your faults. Um, but it's been it's fun coaching, but we have this thing with uh, youth sports that we call the mercy rule. Sorry. Technology problems seem to be a theme this morning. My tape is now coming off. Does tape count as technology? I don't know. Anyway, um, we call it the mercy rule. And what that means simply is that when it gets to a certain point, where you are clearly obliterating the opponent, we choose to, to do something different so that they don't feel like the worst players on earth. And so usually when, it's like, when you get up by like 15 points, the mercy rule requires that you, have, you pass the ball three times prior to taking a shot. And really what that means is it just takes you longer to score so that you're not just crushing the life out of your opponents and they're deciding to quit basketball midseason and, you know, go play cornhole or something, right? So, so this, is, this is the mercy rule. But it's, you know that you have the power to win by, like, 45, and so you choose not to. This is often how we think about mercy. We think of it as withholding something, as choosing not to do something that we could do otherwise. But when Jesus talks about mercy, when we see mercy kind of shown in this story... It's not the absence of something. It's not withholding something. But it's actually, it's a different way of being in the world. It's a, a choice to live in a different way. It's an active movement that moves us toward the person that we might otherwise avoid. It motivates us toward that, the, the outcast, the outsider, the person who it would be easy to ignore, 
who it would be comfortable to avoid, who if we just kind of went with the flow, they would have no space in our life. Mercy from Jesus moves us towards that person. It moves us towards the other. It's a radically different way of being in the world. And Jesus didn't just model this in in the parables he told, the stories he told. We see this reality play out in Jesus' life. There's a story that we read in one of the other biographies of Jesus, the first one we come to, Matthew, where Jesus lives this out. And I love this story. I want to read it to you this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. It'll be, again, it'll be up on the screen for you to follow along. It begins, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So this is a remarkable story for a couple of reasons. Uh, For one, this is about Matthew. Now remember, this is in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is telling us his story. He's remembering the moment when Jesus came to eat dinner at his home. It's a very personal story. So, so Matthew's kind of laying out his, his the, kind of the moment in time when he decided to follow Jesus. And we see Matthew as uh, a, a tax collector. Now, uh, most commentators would say Matthew was more, most likely a, a, a tariff collector. So he was someone who would collect the duties on, on goods that were being traded with the Roman Empire. So that meant two things. One, it meant that Matthew was likely pretty wealthy at a time when there were few wealthy people, when the disparity between those who had and those who had not was significant. There was a lot of people living in abject poverty and a very few who had a lot. Matthew happened to have one of those positions that made him quite comfortable. But the second thing that's interesting about this, the second implication of this, is that Matthew was also something of a traitor. Matthew worked for the occupying powers, the Roman government, those who were oppressing the Jewish people. And he did it because it worked out well for him. He kind of sold his people out so that he could make some money, so that he could set himself up to be comfortable. So as you can imagine, Matthew is not someone who's particularly liked by the religious elite, particularly those who who have this sense that really what God is doing is liberating the nation of Israel from the Romans. In that way, Matthew is the worst kind of traitor. He's, in fact, working against God. And so, understandably, they expect that Jesus is going to look at them the same way that they would, that he would be offended, that he would take this opportunity to lecture Matthew on how repulsive his life is how he's the reason why Israel is going to hell in a handbasket. This is his opportunity. But he doesn't do that. 
he goes and he has dinner with him and some of his scum friends. Frankly, I love the fact that this translation chooses to use the word scum. I think the only time I've really actually heard anybody use that is in Star Wars, right? The rebel scum piece. So anytime someone, I read this, I'm like, oh, it's like Star Wars, but not really. Um, sorry, that had nothing, really had nothing to do with the sermon at all. I just think Star Wars. Um, but you, so Jesus, Jesus' call, remember, to Matthew is not, it's not, hey, whatever, what you're doing is cool, just keep doing it. The call is to follow him. The call is for Matthew to leave what he's doing and to join Jesus, to become a disciple, a student of Jesus. But in the process, it ends up with Jesus at Matthew's home with his shady friends. And we have to remember that that table fellowship, that eating a meal with someone in this, in ancient Israel, was a very intimate thing. It wasn't like, it, it, it wasn't like how we typically eat dinner now, where you kind of have your plate and your space, and this is your stuff, and everyone has a comfortable margin of 6 to 12 inches between each other. Like, everyone's reclining around a table together. You're sharing out of the same bowls. This is a very intimate, close experience. You only shared table fellowship with people you considered close friends or family. And so for the, the religious leaders to see Jesus doing this with these these scum, these people, was repulsive. What was Jesus doing? But Jesus is showing what mercy looks like. Jesus is showing what he means when he says, I I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is Jesus moving past the stereotypes and caricatures that the religious people are making and moving into relationship. He steps through the us versus them. Those people are like this, and they'd never, and so I'd never. He pushes through all of that so that he can have relationship with them. This is what mercy looks like. Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage uh, from Hosea, chapter 6. It says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Why did Jesus quote this? This is, Hosea is a prophet who in this time is speaking to the nation of Israel at a time where there's threats from the outside and the inside. There's threats from outside actors like Assyria that's kind of gobbling up all of these small countries and spreading all over the known world. And they're just waiting to pounce on Israel. But there's threats from the inside. There's corrupt leaders. There's, there's corrupt politicians and religious rulers. And the people are saying, you know, really the problem is that we're not doing our religious works enough. We're not making enough sacrifices. We're not going... To, to synagogue enough, we are not, we're, we're not doing the religious stuff as much as we should. And if we would do that, then God would favor us and God would bless us and protect us from all of this stuff. And Hosea is saying, actually, the, the problem isn't so much with your ritual, it's with your lack of mercy. Because God desires not sacrifice, but mercy. 
So is that simply, I mean, it's easy to jump on this and say, well, see, Jesus and, and Hosea before is just saying religion is crap. Like, this, this is why, yeah, see, exactly, this is why I don't do things like church, and I was dragged here by someone, my, maybe my spouse or my parent or whatever, because religion, it's just, it's, it's bad, right? It's, it just leads people to do bad things. But that's not what Hosea is actually saying, and, and it's not what Jesus is saying. What the point of religion is, is not religious practice itself. It's about putting practices in place that shape you into a particular kind of person. It's about orienting yourself in a new way. Jesus is saying, it's not about doing better sacrifices. It's about acknowledging God in such a way that your life begins to reflect his character. Right? Remember the scripture, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying it's not about how many rituals you can perform. It's about are you opening yourself up to the creator of the universe in a way that your life is beginning to take on his character, that your actions are beginning to reflect who he is and what he's like in the world. That is the point of religious practice. That is why we gather at worship gatherings. That is why we, we study scripture. That is why we, do, we, we sing songs. Not because when we do those things, it makes God happy and he gets to check off the boxes that we did our religious rituals, but because as we do those things, we're orienting our lives around our creator in a way that is making us more like him, that is shaping us into particular kinds of people. Again, as, as James, Jesus' half-brother, would later write in his letter in, that we find in the New Testament, he says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. We see this again and again and again in Jesus' teachings and all throughout the New Testament, that the reason we gather like this, the reason, the, the reason that religion matters that we don't simply reject ritual is because ritual is necessary to help us orient our lives in a particular way. But we must always remember the point of the ritual, the point of the practice. It's not, the sake, it's not for the sake of the practice itself. It's for the sake of our souls. It's so that we can increasingly become more like the one who created us that our lives reflect the nature of God in the world. And we see that nature most clearly when we come to Jesus in the cross. That this is kind of the ultimate symbol of the mercy of God that we come to see in Christ. That we as people being far from God, God moves to to reduce the space between us. God comes to us, like, like Jesus coming to Matthew's home, not saying, Matthew and your friends, get things fixed up and then come to me when you're all okay. But Jesus coming into their personal space, into intimate space, into relationship with them. In Christ, and particularly in his death and resurrection, we see God come near. We see God's mercy in his movement toward us even when we don't deserve it, especially 
when we don't deserve it. And as we respond to Jesus' call to love our neighbor, that call is one to reflect the mercy of God in the world. It is to live out God's mercy in our lives with our neighbors in our communities. I was thinking about that this week a little bit, um, particularly in light of, I mean, there's just all sorts of stuff going on in the world right now, right? Um, and so even talking about this particular event feels a little dated in light of some of the events of even yesterday in London. But uh, you may remember a, a few days before that, there were uh, a couple of car bombs that went off in Baghdad. One particular bomb that went off outside an ice cream shop. Thinking about this last night as I was with my kids and uh, my nieces, uh, my wife and I took a walk with them to a local ice cream shop not far from our home. And we were just kind of sitting out. It's a beautiful night, right? And so my kids are, are sitting with their cousins at the front window looking out onto the street. My wife and I are standing out on the sidewalk six inches or so away from the curb, cars flying by, people sitting at tables, laughing, reflecting on their day. And I thought, this is kind of what that was like. Families together, sharing some ice cream, enjoying relationship, and suddenly there's an explosion. There were two that day. I believe it was 31 people uh, ended up dying. Um, many, many more injured. And I was reading some different some different articles that were kind of reflecting on this and wrestling with, of course, that age-old question of why would anyone do this and wh what do we do? Particularly now that people like me can read this stuff on the, you know, my screen in the comfort of my home thousands of miles away. The question of what, so now what? Like what do I do about this is really pressing. I don't know if you felt that. It's almost paralyzing, right? Like, you're like, ah, I want to do something. I don't, th there's, what? I was reading an article um, that was on the site of a, an organization called uh, Preemptive Love, and it's a group that works in Baghdad specifically uh, providing relief, medical assistance, education, and business grants. And in this article, uh, the, the woman, Erin Wilson, who's a staff for them, it was titled Mercy in Baghdad. And she was asking the same question. She wrote, where is God's mercy this morning? God's mercy is in exhausted Baghdad doctors who were up all night stitching children back together. God's mercy is in people who are taking in new shell-shocked orphans. God's mercy is in the families of three men who protected a young Muslim woman from a racist attack in Portland, Oregon. You've probably heard about that, too. God's mercy is in those who call out hate in the online comment section. God's mercy is in the one who stops to ask a struggling friend, are you okay? We are God's mercy in the world. Where mercy is absent, we are absent. May we decide ahead of time that we will love even when the cost is high. We are God's mercy in the world. Now, that might sound incredibly presumptive and maybe even a little arrogant. But it is also what the scriptures tell us. 
If you're familiar at all with a guy named Paul who wrote most of what is the New Testament, multiple times he draws on this image of us as the body of Christ, that followers of Christ are the body of Christ in the world, that we are the physical representation of Christ in the world. And it is through us in our actions that God is at work in bringing love and hope and life and peace and beauty in the world. Not in spite of us, but through us. As, as broken and messed up and as imperfect as we are at it, God again and again chooses to do his work in and through us as we look to follow the way of Jesus in the world. It's reflected in, in writings of early church leaders, such as St. Teresa of Avila, who wrote this. If, if, you've been with us, if you were with us during our Lenten service, we read a portion of her poem, Christ Has No Body, but I want to read just a segment of that to give you a sense of, of what she was reflecting on. She wrote, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. And finally, and most importantly, it's reflected in Jesus' command to his, to his followers, to his disciples, after his death and resurrection, as he's preparing to ascend. And he's instructing his followers, his students, as, as he's getting ready to leave them and they're to go into the world. He says this, again in Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> verse 20. He says, go and, <clears throat> excuse me, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I love this, this image that Jesus gives. And not, not even an image, but this expectation that they can have. Not just that Jesus has now given them kind of the handbook that they get to go out into the world with, but that Jesus gives them himself. That Jesus is with them and with us so that they can go out and be with others. He gives us himself so that we can give ourselves. So that we can be the bringers of mercy into the world. So I was thinking about what this looks like for us because, again, most of us, we, we don't have, I mean, thank God, we don't have the, the car bombing to respond to. What does it look like in my everyday life to be the bringer of mercy and love? And actually, some, the, the immediate thing that popped into my head were a couple of people who are a part of the church here. And, and many of you do this in many great ways, but the story that, that stuck out of my mind right away was one of um, uh, an individual named Brad Chandler and then Sherry and Henry, who are two people who are part of our church here in various capacities. If you've been around for a while, you've, you've probably met them. Um, recently, Brad had been talking to me about a friend of his, a guy who was named Jim, who was the head of a, the Boy Scout troop that his son was a part of. And he was kind of sharing with me how Jim had tragically recently been diagnosed with brain cancer and talking about the impact that had for Jim's life, uh, for the troop, and, and some of the ways that was affecting their interactions in general. 
So I, I listened. I, I kind of I, I felt bad about that. I talked to Brad a little bit about that, but that was kind of it. Well, after a couple of weeks, I got a, a phone call from Sharon. Maybe it was an email, something. Uh, and, and Sharon had said, hey, I think Brad has told you about our, our mutual friend, Jim. Well, things have gone from bad to really bad. And he's digressing quickly. He's homebound now. And I was wondering if somebody might be willing to go pay him a visit. Now, I know I'm a professional spiritual guy, but it's still a really difficult phone call. And I've gotten, sadly, a couple of these. The question of, would you come and be present with this person who we don't think is going to recover? And so I'm looking, and I don't know this guy. So I'm like, wow, what is the best way to do this so that he's comfortable and, and I I'm actually doing something that's helpful. And so I called Brad up and I said, hey, Brad, w- would you want to go with me? Because he knows you. Brad said, actually, that would be perfect. He said, I'm, I'm actually taking some time off of work to spend with Jim at his home. So here are the days I'm going to be there. Maybe one of those will work. So I found one. I said, sure. Uh, and I, I came and we had lunch together. And I was only there for about an hour. Talked to Jim, talked to Brad prayed with them, and left. It wasn't, wasn't much. But what stuck in my head from that interaction, as, as, as powerful as the interaction with Jim himself was, was a conversation I had with Brad. I assumed, I mean, here's someone who's taken a couple of, again, a couple of days off work to be present, to just sit with this gentleman in his home. I assumed these guys have got to have, like, history. They go back years, right? Like, tight from way back. And as I was talking to Brad, it, it became clear. He's like, no, actually, no. I didn't know him that well. I mean, I n- kind of knew him because he led Gray's Boy Scout troop, but that was kind of it. It was really when this happened that I felt like here was an opportunity for me to do something to care for him. And what struck me about that was I, if I were in Brad's shoes, I don't know that I would have assumed, oh, I should do something. Because it's easy for us to let other people respond. Because I'm sure other people know what to say better than I do. Other people are closer. It would be more comfortable for other people to respond to this thing that's happening. I'll just let them do it. And if anybody needs anything, they can give me a call. But his response was the opposite. It wasn't, well, hopefully someone will let me know if they need something. It was... I'll do whatever I can, even if it just means sitting for six or eight hours as he falls in and out of sleep, helping him in any way I can, because that's what I can do. And I thought, what an incredible picture of mercy. What an incredible picture of what it looks like to be God's mercy in the world to choose into a relationship that you could easily avoid, that makes life less comfortable, more challenging, more uncomfortable, but to choose into it anyway, to bring a little bit of hope and life and love into someone's life. Because that's who God is and what God does. And so, as followers of Jesus, this is who we are and what we do. And as we 
wrap up this series, my hope, my prayer for us is that this question of who is my neighbor is not just something we read in scripture, but is something that we take to heart, is a question that we ourselves ask God in a way that leaves us open and willing to respond. In fact, I I actually want to give us just a a few moments here before we move into a time of Q&A. So if you have questions, if you have anything that uh, uh, you want to share, questions that you have kind of regarding some of what we've talked about, uh, we're going to have just a, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to have a moment to do that. There'll be something we're going to put up on the screen for you to respond to. Um, Carmen will have a mic. So if you have a question, think about that. If you don't feel comfortable raising your hand and saying something out loud, there's a phone number on the back of the bulletin. You can text your question to that, and we'll try and get to that if we have time. Um, but we're going to take just a moment now to reflect on that question, who is my neighbor? And I want to encourage you. There's a, there's a note section on the back of the bulletin to flip that over and to take, we're just going to take like three minutes. There's going to be some music playing. It's just going to be time for you to reflect and to pray. To prayerfully ask the question, who is my neighbor? And for each of us, this question, the answer to this question could look pretty different. For some of us, this might be your literal neighbor. There might be someone who lives next door to you. For some, it might be someone in your friendship circle who you've noticed. You've maybe had thoughts at different times, like, I should really get together with that guy. We should really grab coffee sometime. It seems like something's going on. Like, I can't put my finger on it, but they don't seem right. But you just never seem to have the time. Or maybe it's not even a specific person. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe there's some particular group that you've often found yourself thinking about. Maybe it's one of the groups that that came and was represented here on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's something totally different where you thought, man, what would it be like to serve that group of people? What, What might it be like to visit people who are in prison or to, to, to help teach English to people who are struggling to know English. Or, but what would that be like? Maybe that's something that has come and you just kind of always push it away. You're like, ah, who's got time for that? I want to invite you to just take a few minutes and to prayerfully think about that question. And if there's something that comes to mind, to write it down. And, and, you know, I'm not saying you're like, you're d- like you're suckered into that forever then. But I am encouraging you to take seriously what God might be saying to you about this question of who your neighbor is and what it might look like practically for you to live out the mercy of God in the lives of the people around you. So as we take a moment and we reflect, think about that. And if a name comes to mind, if a group comes to mind, if something kind of comes to mind that resonates, write it down, tuck it away, and throughout the course of the week, spend some time reflecting and praying as to whether or not that might be an invitation from God to take a step towards that individual, that group of people. Verify all sorts of bravery, except the bravery they might show on behalf of their nearest neighbors. I thought that was a really insightful quote. So I'd encourage you, maybe uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this particularly on this quote, if you have thoughts on this, or if you have, again, any questions in general 
in response to what we've talked about this morning. We'd love to hear it. So as we kind of continue to think through this, we're moving on to another series next week. Um, but this is one of those things that is always relevant to us. The question of what does it look like to live the mercy of God in the lives of the people around me is one of the primary kind of components of what it looks like for me to become like Jesus. As someone who is following Jesus and looking to have my life reflect his character, one of the key things is not how do I feel about these global issues, those are really important, but how am I interacting with the person next door, with the person I'm having conversation with today, my coworker, my family member, my friend. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we're really challenged. Do we believe this stuff? Does it really change us? Does it go deeply in our lives? And I pray that it will. Father, thank you for um, thank you for wanting us to live lives beyond what we typically settle for. Thank you for showing us a different way of being in the world. Thank you for rescuing us, for saving us from small, self-centered lives and calling us to live these really risky, challenging, difficult, but life-giving lives in the way of Jesus, where we follow him even to the cross, giving our lives in love for those who are our neighbors and finding life in you, in living life in your way. Would you give us courage and strength as we look to do that individually and collectively as we leave this place this morning? We ask in Jesus' name.